Well, let's read our, our passage together to prepare ourselves to, to hear God's word. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what's wrong with our lives. It straightens us out and it teaches us to do what is right. It is God's way of preparing us in every way, fully equipped for every good thing God wants us to do. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, you want to open up to Judges chapter 8. Chapter 8. We're about halfway through here with Judges. But uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about the danger of success. Now, last week I asked you if you ever had won a trophy. And many of you raised your hands. Well, you know, there, there are all kinds of ways to feel like you're successful. One of them is having a trophy. You win something. Um, another way is just to be good at something. Uh, and most of us, uh, if we stop and think for a little while, we like to think that we're good at least, with at least one or two things, right? I mean, you might be good at talking. You might be good at singing. You might be good at, at, at math, You might be good at uh, mowing the lawn, you know? I mean, whatever it is, there may be something in your life that you feel like, okay, at least I'm good at this, right? And it gives you some sense of satisfaction, uh, some some meaning for life, uh, whatever that is, that, that you do well is a good thing. You can say, God has gifted me in this area. He's given me this talent, this ability, this way of doing something uh, that's maybe good and maybe better than a lot of other people, right? Well, there is this natural longing in your heart, I think, to, to have some level of success and significance, recognition from other people that, that you're good at something, right? I think we all long for that, at least a little bit, I think we do. And so... Um, we can all say that we've probably experienced at least a little bit of success in some area of our lives. Now, at first blush, we think, well, that's a gift, and that's a good thing. But there is a downside to success. As we look at, at Judges here, we see Gideon, who was tapped by God to lead very few people, 300, right? I'm not going to get too much into numbers today, Okay. But he had 300 and he, and, he, and he, you know, did a great job with those 300 people under, under God's direction. And he had success in this, in this battle against the Midianites. And so we're sitting here thinking, okay, now Gideon, he was taken from a tribe which was considered the least of the tribes of Israel. And we talked about the fact that, uh, that God wanted and sometimes does use the least of these in order to do what he wants to do, use somebody weak to show God's power, right? So that's kind of how God operates. Well, Gideon experiences success, and almost immediately on the heels of that success comes criticism, right? Look at verse 8. I mean, chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Then the people of Ephraim... Now, Ephraim was considered kind of like if if the 12 tribes of Israel got rankings, Ephraim would be right up there at the top, okay? It'd be one of the the most significant groups of the Israelites. It says, Then the people of Ephraim asked Gideon, Why have you treated us this way? Why didn't you send for us when you first went out to fight the Midianites? 
What were they saying? What were they saying? You see, God chooses Gideon, one of the least of the tribes of Israel, and, and, and says, I want you to lead this army. And as I recall, nobody else was really chomping at the bit to join him, right? As a matter of fact, remember those, I don't know how many, uh, left, right? The, the truth, and that left him with 300. Only 300 people, and the whole bunch of the people that, that Gideon had tapped said yes. And they weren't afraid to follow. And so now here, the, the, uh, the people of Ephraim are saying, why didn't you send for us? Well, this is after the fact, right? I mean, Gideon did the work that God called him to do. He, he was in the battle, and now the people, after he's already won, are saying, well, how come you didn't call us? And so here we have a situation where we start with a criticism. They were upset because they missed out on the glory of the victory, Right? I mean, they, they could have just as easily said, isn't it amazing, Gideon, that God used you when you didn't think you could lead these people and such a few people that, that God, God weeded out and here you had a victory? Praise God! You see, they weren't really into praising God as much as they wanted to praise themselves. They wanted a little piece of that glory that they think that Gideon has. And so it goes on and it says, and they argued heatedly with Gideon. But Gideon replied, and this is a, a, a very politically correct way to, to respond to criticism. He says, what have I accomplished compared to you? He goes on, he says, aren't even the leftover grapes of Ephraim's harvest better than the entire crop of my little clan of Abiezer? He says, God gave you victory over Oreb and Zeb. The, commandments, uh, the commanders of the Midianite army, what have I accomplished compared to that? When the men of Ephraim heard Gideon's answer, their anger subsided. What did, what did Gideon do? He built them up a little bit. He fed their ego, got them to calm down a little bit, and he, he kind of gave them their, their due that they were looking for in the first place, right? And so uh, he doesn't try to, to you know, really get back at them. Now, it goes on, it says in verse 4, Gideon then crossed the Jordan River um, with his 300 men, and though exhausted, they continued to chase the enemy. Remember that uh, the Midianites, some of them ran away from, from the, the, the battle that was going on, and, and it wasn't finished, and so Gideon says, let's finish this thing, and so they are, they are running after the enemy. Verse 5 says, Then when they reached Succoth, uh, Gideon asked the leaders of the town, Please give my warriors some food. They are very tired. I am chasing Zeba and Zalumna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth replied, Catch Zeba and Zalumna first, and then we'll feed your army. Now here again, it's like the people of Succoth, they were Israelites. Okay? These are his own people. And he has just rescued them from this horde. Remember it said there were so many of them, they were like locusts. Right, so Gideon, with his little band of three hundred people, have 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 beaten up on, on the Midianites and and pushed them back, and now they're on the run, and he's just asking for a little bit of food so they can they can finish the job, and they said, well, when you get done, you come see us. Wow, wow. 
In other words, they basically said, well, you haven't done enough to gain our recognition yet. Okay? Uh, you could do more. Anybody ever heard that before? I mean, you had a little measure of success. You, you really put yourself out there. You, you did what you didn't think you could do, and God helped you. And someone says, eh, you're all right. You could have done more. Right? There's always going to be somebody who's a negative Nancy. Sorry if there's anybody named Nancy here, all right? Uh, but there's always somebody who's going to weigh in and say, you're not, as, you're not as good as you think you are, right? Now, this is an interesting turning point in Gideon's life. Gideon submitted to God's authority. He, he had faith, and he stepped out, and he did the miraculous with God's power, God's help, right? But a little bit of human starts getting into Gideon's life here, all right? Um, So verse 7 says this. So Gideon said, After the Lord gives me victory over Zeba and Zalumna, I will return and tear your flesh with the thorns and briars from the wilderness. Does that sound like something godly? Now this... This is his people. These are the people that he went to war, to battle, to save. And so he gets upset. He gets upset. I'm going to return and tear your flesh with those thorns. And from there, Gideon went up to Penel and again asked for food. But he got the same answer. So he said to the people of Penel, After I return in victory, I'm going to tear down this tower. Now, do you see the I language there? When he was in battle before with a foreign country, he was all about God. But now, when his own people don't give him what he wants, what does he do? I'm going to do this to you. I'm going to come back, and I'm going to torture you, and I'm going to tear down your tower. Wow. Wow. Verse 10, by this time Zeba and Zalumna were in Karkor with about 15,000 warriors, all that remained of the allied armies of the east. For 120,000 had already been killed. That's a lot of people, okay? Gideon circled around the caravan route east of Noba and Jogbeha, uh, taking the Midianite army by surprise. And Zeba and Zalumna, the two Midianite kings, fled But Gideon chased them down and captured all their warriors. Now, you're keeping track of numbers, right? There's still only 300 people with Gideon. And he captures 15,000. That's that's an amazing feat. Only God could do that, right? Only God could do that. And, And Gideon, I think, knows that. And so after this, verse 13 says, Gideon returned from the battle by way of Harry's pass. And there he captured a young man from Succoth. Oh, hey. Where is Succoth? It's the first place they stop to get a little bit of food and rest, right? And uh, so he captures this young man from Succoth, and he demanded that he write down the names of all the 77 officials and elders in the town. And Gideon then returns to Succoth and says to the leaders, Here are Zeba and Zalumna. When we were here before, you taunted me, saying, Catch Zeba and Zalumna first, and then we'll feed your exhausted army. 
Then Gideon took the elders of the town and taught them a lesson, punishing them with thorns and briars from the wilderness. And he also tore down the tower of Peniel and killed all the men in the town. You catching this? So God chose judges to be raised up and deliver his people from the oppressors and and lead his people, the Israelites, back to worshiping God, the one true God, in the right way. We're at a point now where even the judges are going bad. Okay? God calls Gideon, and, and it's interesting... At the end of every judge's reign, I mean, when, when they finish delivering Israel and setting them straight back on the, on the right path to worship God, at the end of every chapter, we see it says that, and then there were, were he lived 40 more years and there was peace in the land. Right? The first three we, we looked at. Now it's going to be different. It's going to change. And we see this degradation of even the leadership that God raises up to try and bring his people back to himself, the leaders start going bad. Even though God intercedes and helps, he wants his people to be free to worship him the way that he designed them to to worship. But the leadership now, Gideon himself, does something that is totally out of character. God raised Gideon up to save the people. And to set him back on the path of worshiping God. And instead, what is Gideon doing? He's torturing his own people and killing them. It's what the Midianites did. All right? Interesting. Interesting. So something can happen sometimes when when we have a little measure of success and we don't feel like people are giving us what we deserve. Defensiveness sets in. We can feel the need to defend ourselves. So Gideon finally loses it. He lets his human side come out and he winds up torturing and even killing the people that God charged him with to save and to lead back into worship. Well, um, then it goes on, verse 18. Then Gideon asked Ziba and Zalumna, uh, the enemy kings, he said, um, the men you killed at Tabor... What were they like? And they replied, like you, they replied. They had, and and they all had the look of a king's son. They were my brothers, the sons of my own mother, Gideon said. So it's really interesting here. You know, Satan knows how to push your buttons, right? And, you know, one of the buttons that, that he can really use is your own family. I mean, you can say what you want about me, my, my pastoral style, my preaching and whatever, but don't be talking about my wife. Right? I mean, don't we have that inside us? Someone starts picking on our family, our kids, the people we love, and you're in trouble. Right? And we might even do something that we regret later because we want to protect those that we love most. And so here's the situation. Gideon asked those, those kings, he, he says, uh, who did you kill? What were they like? He said, they were your family. 
And so Gideon, he loses it. He loses it. And he goes on and he says, Gideon exclaims, As surely as the Lord lives, I wouldn't kill you if you hadn't killed them. But then he turns to Jether, his oldest son, and he said, Kill them. But Jether did not draw his sword, for he was only a boy, and he was afraid to do it. Then Ziba and Zalumna said to Gideon, Be a man and kill us yourself. Wow. What a story, you know? And, and, and so, uh, so then Gideon killed them both and took the royal ornaments from the necks of their camels. I don't know why the camels were wearing the king's stuff, but, you know, that's a whole other story, all right? But the bottom line is that Satan does know how to push our buttons so that we actually are tempted to maybe dish out a little something that we shouldn't be dishing out to people who are against us or talk badly about us or whatever. And so the next level for Gideon, here's what happens next. The people basically respond to Gideon. Now, now keep in mind, here are God's holy people watching this person that God had raised up to be their leader, right? The judge was supposed to be the leader. And, and so we, we see here that they all of a sudden look at Gideon with fear. And out of fear, the people respond. Verse 22 says this, The Israelites said to Gideon, Be our ruler. You and your son and your grandson will be our rulers. For you, here's the big mistake, for you have rescued us from Midian. See, the people, they didn't say God rescued us from Midian and he used you, the lowest of the low, and raised you up and gave you the power to do it. They said, you, you have rescued us from Midian. And Gideon tries to make a recovery. You know, Gideon replies, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you. And, and, And look at this. However... You get that one? The next word, however. I, no, I won't be your king. God is your king. However, however, I do have one request. And here it is. That each of you give me an earring from the plunder you collected from your fallen enemies. The enemies being the Ishmaelites uh, who all, all wore gold earrings, Right? So they said, gladly, gladly, they replied. So they spread out a cloak and each one threw in a gold earring that they had gathered from the plunder. And the weight of the gold earrings was 43 pounds, not including the royal ornaments and the pendants, the purple clothing worn by the kings of Midian or the chains around their necks from the camels. And it says in verse 27, Gideon made a sacred ephod from the gold and put it in Ophrah, his hometown. But soon all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it, and it became a trap for Gideon and his family. Sounds eerily like the golden calf story, right? So here, here's the significance is, is amazing. He takes this 43 pounds of gold and he, and he uses it along with all the ornaments and things like this, the jewels and stuff that these kings were wearing and were on their camels. 
And what does he do? He makes an ephod. Now, what is an ephod? An ephod was the breastplate that the high priest that God chose that he wore as part of his, his raiment. Now, on this ephod were the Urim and the Thummim. What the Urim and the Thummim were, they were like, uh, almost like dice, okay? They had a heads and a tails. They a yes on one side and a no on the other. And the high priest, when there was a question that the people had of God, usually it was the king or someone that, that was uh, leading, and in some cases it would be the judge even, and there was, there was a, a, a decision that needed to be made, yes or no, or wait and see, right? Well, the priest would take those two pieces, and we don't know what they actually looked like, if they were round or they look, looked like flat things with things on both sides, but he would probably throw them up in the air, and they would land, and if it was two heads, it was yes. If it was two, no, two, two tails, it was no. If it was a head and tail, it's like no answer, right? And so here's what happens. In essence, what Gideon is doing is he is now taking upon himself the responsibility of the high priest of God. Okay? And then he takes and puts this ephod in his hometown. Now, that's a different place of worship than where the other ephod and the other high priest was. And so he is now saying, I want you to redirect your attention from the one true God and his place of worship and his chosen high priest, and now I'm going to take that place of the decision maker for the whole country, and I am going to have you come to my hometown to worship God. You see the shift? He says he doesn't want to be their king, but he acts like it. He's acting like it. Now that has huge implications for us because what we see here is a situation where Gideon is actually chosen by God to be a leader and yet he abuses the power, the authority that God has granted him. And he takes it upon himself then to elevate himself just a little bit higher than what he was supposed to be. Kind of a shade of... Lucifer. Lucifer was created the most beautiful, most powerful created being of God in the angelic realm. And at, at, and at some point, Lucifer says, I am going to ascend to be like God. And not just like God, but greater than God, right? And so we see here a human kind of doing the same thing. I am going to be like God. Does that, that give us a little bit of, of insight into the first sin? What did Satan tempt Adam and Eve with? If you eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can be like God. Your eyes are going to be opened and you will be like God. And that has been the number one problem with humanity forever. So we all have this little bit of, of, of sin in us that, that, that is like a siren. It keeps calling to us. 
You, you can be in charge of your own destiny. You can make your own decisions. And that little bit of success sometimes gives us that, that little bump that we think that we can, we, we, we know what to do in this situation, right? Because we've been there, we've done that, we've had some success. And so we say one thing, I am, God is God, he is my number one, he's on my, my throne. We sang that song today, you know, you're on the throne, God, but what do we do? We take that back on ourselves sometimes and we want to direct traffic. And even our prayer life is, God, I've thought about this for some time now, and would you please now just sign off on what I've decided is going to be best for me and everybody in the world? We have to be honest. There are times when we say, I don't want to be God. I am not, I am not your ruler. I am not the king. And yet we, we take it back. And we want to start directing traffic again. Right? So it's, it's, a, it's a huge, huge wake-up call. Wake-up call as we see Gideon and how he, he fails. He fails. He acts like a king instead of a judge who was appointed by God to deal with the crisis and lead the people back to living under God's rule and reign. Right? So we see here um, in verse 28... That's the story of how the people of Israel defeated Midian, which never recovered. And throughout the rest of Gideon's lifetime, about 40 years, there was peace in the land. Now, that's where it ends with all the other judges, right? There was peace in the land. But it goes on. It says, Then Gideon, son of Joash, returned home, had 70 sons born to him, for he had many, many wives. He also had a concubine in Shechem who gave birth to a son who he he named Abimelech. Uh, Gideon died and he was very old and he was buried in the grave of his father Joash and Ophrah and the land and the clan of Abiezer. Um, So we can easily vocalize our loyalty to God, but we need to be wary. And, And maybe that's why God gives us the church, Right? The church is intended to be a family of people who gather together, um, not to keep each other in line, but to lovingly come alongside one another and encourage one another to keep God as God, right? To worship the one true God and to keep that in focus all the time. See, though we long for success and recognition, um, when we achieve some measure of it, there are some pitfalls. And so we need to guard our own hearts and remember to always give God the glory for any success we might achieve as an individual or a group or as a church even, right? It's easy to get our focus off of God and onto us instead. So let's commit ourselves once again to uh, making God be our God And we serve him and love him and understand that everything that we have is a gift from him, right? All right, let's pray. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us um, this story. And it's it's a warning story, God. we, We know that. We see that. Forgive us when we say we want you to lead, but we don't let you lead. When we want to direct who you are and what you do for us. Um, God, we humbly now stand before you and we once again want to lift you up and give you 
the glory that only you deserve. Uh, help us to do that, God, through your spirits nudging and through us just encouraging one another to love and good deeds that you call us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.